ship clock dies, the pendulum swings. Watch it count down to the end of the day. The clock takes life away. So Hey, welcome, welcome, welcome everyone to the latest episode of the Patrick Ewing Ruin My Life podcast show. Sorry it's been so long since we aired. Uh, just been doing a little traveling this summer, taking a little time off, but I am back and uh, I'm here to discuss uh, things such as the O.J. Simpson parole hearing that had taken place yesterday and uh, things that have been going on around the NBA. Trades, transactions, NBA draft, the alleged imbalance that exists now in the NBA. So, uh, got a good show lined up, and uh, I guess let's uh, let's get underway here. We were led in by none other than the uh, great Lincoln Park. Um, of course, recently found out with everyone else that uh, frontman Chester Bennington of Lincoln Park recently had taken his own life and uh, that is just beyond horrific news um, thoughts prayers reflection of course go out to um, his family and friends those close to Chester um, just a horrific thing I don't want to get too into it but it's just deeply upsetting to me that the unfortunateness that such a talented individual had uh, taken his own life. Um, I understand that he suffered from various addictions, various vices with drugs and alcohol throughout his entire adult life. Um, I know he had dealt with a lot of trauma growing up in his childhood as well. And anyway, without reflecting on it too much, I, I just my heart pours out to his family. He, um, he survived by six children. Um, two different relationships and I wish them nothing but the best and uh, hopefully they have a good support group around them to help them get through this and I hope his soul rests in peace of course his music will live on forever and uh, again it's a tragedy it's a tragedy speaking of tragedies let's move on to the next uh, topic of the conversation here of discussion and that is none other than the parole hearing of one O.J. Simpson. Ironically, it was pretty much a year ago that we aired an episode that was premised on the O.J. saga that had taken place, that had aired on ESPN. Um, I think it was O.J. O.J. Simpson Made in America. And... Uh, you know, my uh, my friend Chris and I delved deep into it, and we took on issues such as race in this country, um, what role that played in that particular trial, what role it played in his recent incarceration for kidnapping and robbery. And uh, let's start off with that. 
and I know it's, we're delving into a, a pretty hardcore, serious topic here, but uh, you know, I, it's obviously ruling the airwaves, and uh, I like to discuss it and chime in on it as well. I've gotten into many discussions with friends, family, uh, various outlets of social media with people that I follow and follow me, etc. And uh, I've gotten some pretty interesting commentary and feedback. A lot of mixed reviews. I'd say it's about 50-50 um, split down the middle with the pulse of this country of whether or not um, they feel or believe that OJ was indeed entitled or deservant of being given even an opportunity to um, argue his case for parole. And, um, you know, trying to look at this from a third person's perspective, because, I mean, I have about 10 years of experience in corrections and law enforcement. So I am familiar with that aspect and that side of things. So I understand what incarceration is like, what is the, what that is like on a day-to-day basis. Um, so I could touch on that in a moment, but let's get back to that. And here's my belief, and, th- and I've held true since day one that OJ was even apprehended and charged um, nine years ago with armed robbery and kidnapping. It was proven in a California state of court, in a California state court of law, that the items that Oldenthal James tried to retain, or recapture if you will, were indeed his belongings. And they were unrightfully taken from him. Now, what is an argument here, of course, from a legal standpoint, is the fact that the means in which he went about retaining or reobtaining these items. And naturally, that's where these crimes were committed. Um, should have he been charged? Yes. Should have he been jailed? Yes. For how long? That is a smoking gun question right there. How long? I believe that his sentence was very much punitive in nature because it sort of was like a redemption sentence for him essentially being acquitted for the double murder of Ronald Goldman and Nicole Brown Simpson. Make no mistake about it. One thing in one respect has very little to do with the other, yet in another aspect has absolutely everything to do with it. And let me further explain. How it has nothing to do with it is that naturally he's gone to trial for the double murders. We all know the crime, the trial, the century, still to this day, nothing even comes close to the magnitude that one particular trial captured the attention of our society, not only from a national perspective, but even from a global perspective. It essentially changed the way we view television, reality TV, things of that nature. It truly set a precedence. Um, with that being said, he was found. He was acquitted for whatever reasons. I don't want to go back into it. The mishandling of the trial by the prosecution, by the county of Los Angeles, their prosecu- prosecution team led by Marsha Clark and company. 
mishandling of evidence, inappropriation of evidence via the Los Angeles Police Department, for whatever reasons that we can come up with today, that really cannot be argued, he was found not guilty of the charges of murder in the first degree. <clears throat> However, and naturally we, most of us understand the laws regarding double jeopardy. You cannot be tried for the same charge. And mind you, and this is something that people forget, is that he was found guilty in a civil court. He was found guilty of those charges in a civil court and he was held civilly liable for the murders of Ronald Goldman and Nicole Brown Simpson. Some may argue that that in and of itself was double jeopardy. But nonetheless, the way that the courts work and the laws of this land work, one is a criminal court, the other a civil court. Therefore, it doesn't fall into the scope of what would be considered to be double jeopardy. So moving on. Um, 2008, OJ's in a hotel. I forgot what hotel it was. Las Vegas, Nevada. I believe he was attending a friend's wedding. Through the ranks, through the connections, he had found out that there was a memorabilia show that was going to be taking place and that people that he knew of were in obtainment of not only memorabilia of his, which he claims he could care less about, signed football, autographed footballs, jerseys, etc., but more like personal archives personal photographs of family, friends, intimate things. That's where he got upset. Led to him, along with a group of other individuals, going in there, essentially strong-arming these people. Now, it's factual that OJ did not furbish a weapon. However, he was in the presence of someone that did furbish a gun and held someone at gunpoint, who was the alleged victim in this case. I forgot his name, but the gentleman that basically testified, ironically, on O.J.'s behalf yesterday at his parole hearing. Nonetheless, O.J. was charged with strong-arm robbery, kidnapping, which I assume in the state of Nevada, if found guilty of, can hold a sentence of up to 30, 33 years or something like that. O.J. was sentenced to that. He was found guilty of both charges. Many felt a sense in the public eye felt a sense of restitution that he got his just desserts that he basically essentially walked unscathed from the double murder trial and that this was sort of like repayment for him essentially walking away from that situation and here we are now nine and a half years later according to Nevada state law, after a certain number of years, you are up for parole as long as you convey and display what they would constitute as being good behavior. Many in the, in the on the inside can testify and attest to the fact that OJ was quote unquote a model inmate. Now, let me clarify, and this is where maybe my experiences, I'm not going to say my level of expertise, but my level of experiences of working in a correctional facility, working in law enforcement, can maybe shed some light on exactly what constitutes, quote unquote, being a model inmate. It doesn't take much, folks, okay? One, you have to avoid write-ups. What would constitute a write-up? Possession of contraband, 
contraband being anything in your possession that you were not given permission to possess with while being incarcerated. This could be anything from cigarettes, if cigarettes were not permitted, obviously illegal drugs of any kind, um, certain periodicals, I don't know, pornographic nature, um, certain food items, certain pieces of clothing, any kind of weaponry that was furbished, anything that was altered from its original state. Um, a lot of tattooing goes on in the prisons. Um, how they go about doing this is nothing short of ingenious. Um, essentially what inmates usually do is they take chess pieces, plastic chess pieces or checker pieces, and melt them down. They thus take that melted plastic down and use some sort of hair gel or some sort of paste and they essentially mix in the dye within the paste itself and basically use a staple head some sort of needle furbish it to like a, a pen tube and with rapid fire thus you're creating your tattoo pen and your tattooing so things like that is what's considered to be contraband so possession of illegal contraband can be one thing for a write-up. Naturally fighting, any physical altercations can lead to a write-up. Um, insolence, profanity, disrespect towards a staff member, whether it be an officer, a member of the administration, the medical staff, any, any member of the support staff, the staff that's leading the rehabilitative programs, the educational programs, the substance abuse programs, etc. All these things could constitute what we consider to be a write-up. So, in the course of nine years, for an inmate to go with very little or no write-ups at all, it's pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. Because the kind of correctional facility that I worked at was not a state prison, it was a county facility. It was a county jail, so you, either, you had two types of inmates at a county jail. You had those that were awaiting trial, and you had those that were serving sentences of less a year or less thus basically misdemeanor offenses. If you're found guilty of a felony, you're going to a state penitentiary. Unless you were in jail so long that the remainder of your sentence is a year or less, then you could basically finish out the remainder of your sentence in a county facility. So with that being said, it's pretty impressive that O.J. Simpson went for a period of nine, nine and a half years without having a single write-up of violation. That is impressive in and of itself. Considering the, the allegation or assumption that he was in there with some pretty bad dudes. Now, I did some research on this prison. It's this Lovelock State Prison, the state penitentiary in uh, Lovelock, Nevada. And it's a medium security facility. It houses about 1,600 inmates. And um, I wouldn't say it houses the bad of the bad. In fact, it, it, it rewards and encourages good behavior. Um, those that are usually transferred out or sentenced to that particular prison um, are there usually because they do model good behavior. Um, very few altercations from what I understand. Um, a decent rapport between the staff itself and the inmate population. They even have a minor security unit. They have a segregation unit. Um, OJ did have a and a, um, a cellmate who apparently was a um, 
just a, I guess, a horrible individual. Allegedly raped over 100 women. And uh, O.J. still kept himself. And from what some certain prison officers said, they, they got along just fine. They had a very amicable relationship. Um, they just coexisted. They divided their duties of what was responsible in the cell. And so be it. So, the long and the short of it, he did everything he needed to do from an inmate perspective that would lead him to at least have an opportunity to appear in front of a parole board for a hearing to be deserving of parole. Make no mistake about it. This isn't a judgment call. This is the way the laws of the land are written. And this law, as far as qualifying for parole, is pretty much across the board. In other words, the majority of the 50 states kind of adopt this, this, this premonition because we have a serious overcrowding of our prisons and jails in this country. So any opportunity that, that they get a chance to release a prisoner on good behavior and put them on parole, they're going to take advantage of that. They're going to look for every reason to do that, not to deter that from happening. And going into this, I think this is where members of the media really were not did not take the time to educate themselves enough to truly understand all the the aspects that were that were contributing to what led to their decision yesterday. To me, it was a foregone conclusion and it was safe to make a preconceived notion that O. J. Simpson was going to be released on parole. Now people think he's just walking away. That that he's just gonna live a scot free life. Being on parole is no picnic. Okay, there are a lot of contingencies. You have to keep in mind, there are substantiating reasons why that would lead a person to be incarcerated to begin with. The main common factor, the main common denominator that all people that commit crimes have is that innate lack of self-control. That inability to control one's impulses that led them and continues, some of them, lead them to make these gross errors in judgment. That's why the rate of recidivism in this country is huge. It's something well over 50% of all prisoners that are released, whether it be on a parole status, probational status, or just released as time served, end up back into the, into the correctional system, into the penal system, because of that lack of self-control. That inability to go out and change your environment, to change your circumstances, they fall right back into the same trappings. Now, it's not to say that OJ will follow suit and do the exact same thing. But one thing that I inconclusively did not hear yesterday, on the part of his own testimony to the parole board, was how he was going to change his life. What steps that he was going to take, what he was going to do when he gets out. Is he going to continue programs? Is he going to continue to seek help? Who is he going to surround himself by? Is he going to seek the spotlight rather than letting the spotlight, so to speak, seek him? Because we all know when he officially gets out, probably sometime in September or October, there's going to be a swarm of media covering his release, some interviews of what he's going to do next, and he's going to relish in that. The man needs to make money. He owes millions of dollars to attorneys. This money has to come from somewhere. I'm sure he's got money stashed away somewhere, but I'm sure he's not 
as well off as he once was just because of all the legal fees that have been accumulated throughout the last 20 some out years of him being in and out of courts so make no mistake about it it's not going to be anything short it's not going to be a picnic for him when he does get on parole okay he has to report he has he's going to have a parole officer assigned to him essentially a case manager that's going to be monitoring every facet of his life I'm sure things such as use of alcohol excessively especially outside the home use of any kind of illegal drugs to include marijuana is going to be prohibited he's going to be frequently drug tested he may even be subjected to a breathalyzer test to see if he has what the content of how much alcohol is in the content of his blood he needs to report either on a weekly or bi-weekly basis to his parole officer he probably won't be able to travel outside the country he might not even be able to travel outside the state in which he is granted permission to reside in now I know he and his team is making a motion for him to move and transfer his parole to the state of Florida which I assume his daughter resides in his eldest daughter I forgot her name but she seems like a lovely young lady um, who obviously has much love for him who obviously wants to take on this challenge of being a positive figure in his life and hopefully help him stay on the straight and narrow. Now, personally, I have nothing invested in this. I could care less if he fails or succeeds. But I can't sit here and lie to you that I'm not intrigued, like a lot of people aren't. Because if we weren't intrigued, I wouldn't have tuned in to the entire three or four hours, you know, yesterday dedicated to this entire parole here. So I am intrigued. I am intrigued how he's going to live his life upon his release. It's got to be painful. It has to be nothing short but painful for the families of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman to see him set free. You know, and this is what I'm talking about when I talk about it, how him being incarcerated now plays a part there is a connection to his previous crimes or alleged crimes and there isn't this is where there is a connection and this is the unfortunate part is that you still have two families that are very much suffering for the loss of their loved ones the heinous uh, despicable manner and ways in which these people were eradicated from this earth I mean, it's just, it's horrible to even think about even today. And yet we are 20, over 20 years removed from these crimes. And it has to illuminate with everyone. With as sophisticated as our technologies are today. From a forensic standpoint, to just the way people communicate via social media it's hard to believe that not a single suspect ever arose from these crimes not a single motive because who else besides OJ Simpson even had a motive to take out these people as far as I know I don't think there's too many people that hated these individuals to the extent that they wanted them removed from the face of this earth 
So you know that not only that that rests upon the minds of these these grieving families, but rests upon the minds of many in our society. Because there are a good segment of the population that just want to forget it and dismiss it and move on and say, look, we we trusted the justice system. And I understand that. And there are many members of the of the black community who feel very much that, who feel a sense of vindication that OJ like it or not, is an embodiment of, of a lot of their trials and tribulations that have taken place and misjustices, if you will, that have taken place within the courtroom structure. So there is a sense of vindication. I'm not going to shy away from that or walk away from that. And I understand that. I do. I do. But it's short-sightedness. It really is. Do you really want to throw everything you stand for behind a person such as O.J. Simpson, someone as self-serving, as narcissistic, as self, just, he just, he's in love with himself. He is enamored with himself. He is engrossed with everything himself. He, I just don't see him having the capacity or the ability to, to genuinely care for anyone else but himself. And I understand that. And this goes back to discussions and arguments that I have made about athletes and people in general in, that have been in the spotlight for the overwhelming majority of their lives. They know no different. OJ said it himself. From the age of 19, he's been catered to. He cannot relate to the average inmate incarcerated from their backgrounds, from what they went through, from the lack of opportunities or chances, because OJ had chance after chance, opportunity after opportunity throughout his entire adulthood. Make no mistake about it, he's earned those opportunities through hard work and God-given athletic ability and, and through charm and personality. He is a showman. He is an actor. We all saw it on display yesterday on national television for three and a half hours. The facial expressions, the body language, the candor, the humor. You know? The, the charisma. This is, these are the things that endeared so many Americans to O.J. when he was in his, in his heyday. As both an athlete, as a sports commentator, a pitchman for various companies. This is what has endeared him to us. You can't forget that. So this looms large in our society. You know, and, and what this, this doesn't progress our society. If anything, this draws attention to the racial divide that exists in this country more so than ever before. Because the split is quite evident where the split lies. That you pretty much have blacks on one side of the spectrum that feel he's in full entitlement and deservant of being released on parole. And I guarantee 25% of that 50% believes that he was unjustly charged. And to a certain extent, I hold that belief. That any other person in that situation other than O.J. Simpson with the background that he had, even if they served time, would have probably served one to three years and served it in a county facility, not even a state penitentiary. So it was punitive in nature. However, however, 
very few people can sit here and argue adamantly and substantiate their argument with factual information that he did not commit those murders. Everyone that is sane in our society, including the parrot that's chomping behind me in the neighbor's yard, who's just dying to squawk in, no pun intended, believes that he did it, that he committed those crimes, and he got away with it. He caught lightning in a bottle. They allowed the prosecution to walk into just pitfall after pitfall, misstep after misstep, as we all saw it, relived last year on the O.J. Simpson special miniseries. So it's hard. It's hard to sit there as a judge who is essentially up for re-election and to have to stand there and answer not only his opponent but the American public and say, yeah, I allowed O.J. Simpson to walk away. No, he wasn't going to do that. So of course he was going to throw the maximum sentence at him so he could turn around and say, we got him this time. We're not going to let O.J. walk this time. We got him on a technicality. So we're going to nail him. We're going to make him serve 33 years. Because I assume that he's not going to exhibit good behavior. And I assume that he's not going to be eligible enough for parole in nine years. Well, here we are. Played the system. It's almost like a chess match. It's a judicial chess match, if you will. A chess match of legality. And the pendulum continuously swings back and forth from one side to the other. And now the pendulum is on the side of O.J. Simpson and his team. Let's see what he does with the ball now. Let's see what he does with it. Moving on. Look out! Moving on. NBA. NBA action. NBA movement. Oh my gosh, a lot has been... A lot had taken place since I, uh, since I last aired here on the Patrick Ewing Ruin My Life podcast show. We had uh, a lot of movement out west. And ironically, that's where part of my trip was. My wife and my dad were out west in the Utah area in Arizona, frequenting the numerous canyons that exist out there. Beautiful country. If you ever get an opportunity to go out there and explore the canyons, Zion National Park, Bryce Camp, Bryce Canyon, Lake Powell, small little canyon in St. George, Utah called Snow Canyon. Just beautiful, majestic places. Just absolutely gorgeous. Time to just write. We went the first week in June. The week after, the mercury climbed up to over 120 degrees. We got lucky. Hit upper 80s, low 90s. So for that part of the country, that time of year, we were quite fortunate. But anyway, ironically, a lot of movement out west. A lot of movement. Paul George. This is one of those deals that just still baffles my mind. Now, I understand that Indiana had to do something. Because they knew if they held on to Paul George for the year, he was going to walk away next year in free agency. And then they get nothing. So the Pacers get Victor Oladipo and Demonta Sabonis. Now Sabonis had a very disappointing rookie campaign. 
does he have any kind of NBA potential? With the right coaching, he's a hardworking player. He's a banger. He's a big guy. He's not a true center. So let's see how his game grows. Let's see the maturation of his game under some solid coaching. Now, Oladipo was just in the wrong place. How quickly people forget what a solid player Victor Oladipo was for the Orlando Magic. And the minute I heard that he was going to Oklahoma City, I said, what? Makes no sense. You're putting essentially two scorers on the floor at the same time. Two guys that are just go, 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 go. Victor did not fit in that system. He just did not fit in that system with Russell Westbrook. So this is probably one of the best things that could happen to Oladipo's career. Because I really don't think he wanted to remain in OKC. And OKC, of course, landed Paul George. Now, he's a rental. It's a short-term thing. Will he stay there beyond the season? Only time will tell. Let's see how him and Russell Westbrook gel. Now, does this make OKC a better team? Sure. With a healthy Paul George, still considered one of the best two-way players in the game. Not as formidable defensively as he once was. I think after that horrendous injury that he suffered in the Olympics, um, he took a step back physically. That and, you know, father time plays a significant part in the um, demise of his game. Slow demise. Guy still got game. But here's one thing that comes up. And this is one thing I've always knocked him for. And I still question it. And I'm always going to question it until I actually see it. And that's, does he have the clutch gene? What is the clutch gene? That's getting the ball the last 10 seconds of the game and hitting the game-winning shot. Time and time again, he had the ball and he doesn't deliver. He's not that type of player. He is not a team's Batman. And I've said this time and time again. So perhaps this is a good setting for Paul George because this is the first time in his career where he is not the number one guy. It is clear that Russell Westbrook is the number one guy. He's the head honcho in OKC. And Paul George is going to have to take somewhat of a, a, a role, a backup role, to Russell Westbrook. So, where does, this, where does this put OKC? Well, Houston is clearly better with the acquisition of Paul, with uh, the acquisition of Chris Paul. So many Pauls out there. I just can't keep, can't, can't keep up with the Paul action. So, Houston is clearly better. Heck, Houston is still trying to make a play for Melo. Imagine what that team would look like. With Carmelo Anthony joining forces with Chris Paul and James Harden. Playing with one of the best point guards in the game. I guess this puts Harden theoretically at the two. You know, and I hate to speak in today's NBA. I hate to speak in that construct. Because really, the days of positioning is diminishing. You know, the way players are to move about the court and the demands 
that are placed upon the average NBA player from a skill set perspective have changed drastically. Everyone, one through five on that floor, is expected to be able to handle the ball, to be able to have some sort of jump shot, maybe not necessarily shoot effectively from beyond the arc, but have some sort of jump shot, be able to rebound the ball, and to a certain capacity be able to defend. So the makeup of an average NBA starting lineup now has very little to do of, well, who's a natural point? What is a natural point? James Harden proved everyone wrong last year when Mike Antoni shifted him to the point guard position and the guy nearly averaged a triple-double, finished top five in the MVP voting. So he proved everyone wrong. LeBron James has been proving everyone wrong since he stepped into the league that you don't have to be a quote-unquote prototypical point guard to essentially be a distributor. So I don't want to speak in such limited terminology when it comes to a player's ability. But you can't ignore the fact when you add someone of the likes of Chris Paul to your team, who in my mind is as natural of a point guard as there can be in the NBA, his ability to pass his ability to recognize the open man on the floor. He naturally makes other players better. And there's very few people in the NBA you could say that about. LeBron James being on the top of that list. Draymond Green, arguably, to me in my mind, is one of those top tier players that finds a way to make everyone else on the court better. Chris Paul is one of those characters. He is one of those players that basically lifts everyone's game play to a whole new level. Does it make them challengers now for the Golden State Warriors? Absolutely not. Make no mistake about it. With all the jockeying and repositioning and deal making that's been going on, particularly in the West, with these top tier players moving out West... To me, in my mind, as far as the top top dog in that conference, it didn't make all the difference. It maybe allowed some teams to inch a little bit closer. Now, thus creating more of a convoluted jockeying for, say, the number two and number three slots. Even number four slots in the Western Conference. But ladies and gentlemen, make no mistake about it. Number one above all else in the Western Conference, if not the entire National Basketball Association, is the Golden State Warriors. Who just began to find their stride in the NBA Finals. Should have swept the 2017 Cleveland Cavaliers. And if it were not for the interventions of the National Basketball Association in the form of a horrific officiating, they would have swept them. Nonetheless, handled them easily in five games. Make no mistake about it. They are the toast of the town. They are, by great strides, the best team in the NBA. And they're only going to continue to get better, as frightening as that notion is. The fact that Kevin Durant missed that much time, and they just began to find their strides, say, in the conference finals leading into the finals. You could just see the chemistry developing. And the fact that they brought players like like Iguodawa back, who's such an intricate part of that team, 
and the entire foundation of that team is back, and their younger players are only going to continue to get better, if this team stays together, we look at at least a few more years of NBA dominance. And we have, and and as a Knicks fan, and for all the other fans of every other NBA team out there, you have to exercise patience amongst all else. We had to exercise patience when LeBron was with the Heat, and no one could hold a candle to them. Now they were upset that first year, and that was wonderful. That was probably one of the best things that could happen to the National Basketball Association and the sport of basketball is to witness the Dallas Mavericks upset. That, that dream team of sorts that was assembled in South Beach. But we got some time to ride this wave out. Now, L.A. has been nothing short of impressive with their aggressiveness and the movements that they made, the young players they brought in. It's hard to sit here and argue that Lonzo Ball was nothing else but impressive in the Summer League. Now, albeit, it is indeed the Summer League where, in my mind, defense is basically non-existent. However, you could see the intangibles there, folks. You can see the tools. You can see the natural ability that this young man has to distribute the ball. He's a big guy. 6'7", six, 6'8", six, young, probably going to grow another one or two inches. When it's all said and done, he's probably going to be closer to 6'10". He's going to fill out a little bit, so he's not frail. Great court vision. His shot is still suspect, but I think it's only going to improve because I think that's an aspect of his game that he's going to continue to work on. And working under the tutelage of, say, a Magic Johnson, it is going to get better. What on earth is going on there? Apparently I'm um, overhearing an execution of a parrot. Either that or he's somewhat reenacting one. I don't know. I don't know. So Paul George going to OKC. Very little to no difference. Will he be in a Los Angeles Lakers uniform? two seasons from now. Strong possibility. Let's see what kind of season he has. Let's see what kind of play Magic Johnson and company make for him. So, I think it's a foregone conclusion that Golden State is still the toast of the town. Everything else is up to suspect. Why Manu Ginobili is returning to the NBA is beyond me. Um, does this make San Antonio better or worse? I think it doesn't help them whatsoever. I think from a totalitarian standpoint, looking at Manu's body of work, he's been an excellent NBA player. Is he a Hall of Famer? He's borderline. I just don't think he has the career stats to that would justify him getting into the Hall. However, a ring of honor, going into the San Antonio Hall of Fame, without a shadow of a doubt, one of the greatest Spurs of all time. Sacrificed a lot of his career to be more of a role player with that team in the spirit of winning and he's a winner above all else you know um, probably can go on to coaching and have a solid coaching career he's that well respected in the league I could see him working under the two of pops but coming back for another season that's just baffling to me naturally he's going to be coming off the bench I just don't see how that makes that team better and that was one team that surprisingly did not do much to impress me at all in the offseason to get better. So I think we're going to see San Antonio take a little bit of a step back this year. You know, they may fool some people with sliding into the three or four seed and say, oh, Pops did it again. We don't know how he did it. But the true and tried test of a team is how they spare naturally in the NBA playoffs. And that team, the way they were structured, 
they were not built for the NBA playoffs. They just don't have those clutch players. They got some players in development, but they don't have that go-to guy. Now, Leonard is a phenomenal player, but the guy can't do it by himself. And you want to build around him, and he's only going to get better next year. But does he have the pieces around him? Patty Mills is a nice player. He's not your answer at the point. Patty Mills cannot get his own shot. Patty Mills is more formidable and more solid coming off the bench than he is as a starter. Tony Parker is aging more and more. So do you continue to ride this wave out through Leonard's best years of his career, jeopardizing the prime of his career, just so you can allow players like Parker and Ginobili to basically leave when they want to leave, paying tribute to them, squandering one of the NBA's greatest talents? I don't know. One of the first and few times I questioned Popovich's decision-making there in San Antonio. This leads us to none other than the city of Gotham. And my man, Carmelo Anthony. Now, since we last spoke, surprisingly, it was amicable that one Phil Jackson was let go from his position as president and basically ruler of everything that is the New York Knicks decision-making body. Now you got people in there like Mills, brought in a new GM as well, a different philosophy from what I see, and now they begin to dig their feet in a little bit. Where things such as maybe buying Carmelo Anthony's contract out is a foregone conclusion that they are not going to do that. And I like that. And I know a lot of Nick fans are extremely skeptical. Because there's been one free agent after another that they've let go, if you will. Um, you know, a lot of people were upset that a lot of these players were just going. Still looking for a point guard. The Knicks do not have a point guard. What do they do? Are they still jockeying in hopes that they could retain one through a trade, if you will, with a team? such as maybe the Houston Rockets, who still allegedly express a great amount of interest in obtaining Carmelo Anthony. Now you have other teams throwing their hat in the ring as well. The Portland Trail Blazers. Players like Lillard and McCollum via social media openly expressing their interest in wanting to bring Melo aboard. McCollum going as far as, hey, if he joins, if he joins ship here with the Blazers, we're going to be one of the top tier teams in the West. They'll have a nice, formidable three. And I think those three players would complement each other nicely. Little at the point, McCollum at the two, Camelo at the three or four, depending on the mashups that evening. That'd be a nice team to watch. I think Mello and Houston would be much more intriguing. I think Mello going out West would be a smart move. I think Mello in Cleveland is still a possibility, but the fact that Cleveland just acquired Derrick Rose and whom else? I know they acquired someone else. Let me look here on the free agency list. Uh, where ya? Where ya? Cleveland, Cleveland, Cleveland. Up. Oh. Well, they re-signed Kyle Korver. whoop de freaking do I mean, Kyle Korver is one of the best sharpshooters in the league, but basically was canceled out 
in the NBA Finals. Um, anyway, I know they recently signed Derrick Rose, and I know they signed another veteran, and uh, that shores up their team a little bit. Does it make them inch any closer to overthrowing the Golden State Warriors? No. No, they, they have to figure out something else. They have to just do a lot more. And uh, I'm really surprised that Cleveland doesn't want to part ways with Kevin Love to bring in Carmelo. Because Kevin Love impresses me. Kevin Love can do a lot for a team, and I think he's limited very much in Cleveland. You know, and I think you're limiting his skill set by keeping him in Cleveland. Because LeBron just dominates all, and you follow LeBron's lead. So now let's talk about this 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 discussion that goes on all the time that's been dominating the airways. Now, with the exception of Gordon Hayward jumping ship from the Utah Jazz and joining the Boston Celtics, which, by the way, have only continued to get better, which, by the way, doesn't make it a foregone conclusion, as many people think, that Cleveland is going to be the Eastern Conference representative in the NBA Finals. Because let's not forget, the Boston Celtics got the first seed last year. Now, they were hurting in the playoffs, and a lot of their weaknesses were exposed. But you bring a player like Hayward on board, it just makes you exponentially better. And I think they're going to be a much better all-around team. Now, you lose Avery Bradley. You lose Avery Bradley. But, in exchange for Avery Bradley... Ay, ay, ay. I just had it here. You got Marcus Morris. Which, you know, Boston needed some size still. Because I think that's where they suffered a lot last year in the playoffs. They got out-muscled down low. And uh, I think by adding him, it helps. Um, you know, so with the exception of Hayward, you know, there's, a, there's an outcry that there's a huge imbalance in the NBA now that the Western Conference is just far superior and so much better than the Eastern Conferences. It's hard to argue. That is a hard argument to argue against. However, however, I say this. Let's give it a season because I think there's enough young, budding talent emerging from Eastern Conference teams a la the Milwaukee Bucks, with the Greek Freak, who I often allude to. I think Miami has some players there that are going to continue to grow. Players like Johnson, players like Dion Waiters, which I think is going to have somewhat of a coming out season if he stays healthy. Now, these superstars, by no stretch of the imagination, I think KP in New York is going to have an outstanding season if he stays healthy. So you're going to have a lot of budding stars come out of the Eastern Conference. But the Western Conference has the names. They have the marquee names. And they deserve that. And they've earned that. And until an Eastern Conference team steps up and wins the trophy again, there's no argument to even be had. But a gross imbalance? Folks, this is the way professional sports always goes. You, very rarely do you ever have true parity from a conference standpoint in any league. The NFL, it's always been, oh, the AFC is so much more dominant. Oh, the NFC is so much more dominant. 
and you look at head-to-head matchups, and, and it's individual matchups. And it's the same thing with the NBA. You know? I agree top to bottom. The Western Conference is a stronger conference. But I believe that, that the Eastern Conference, if you take the Golden State Warriors out of the Western Conference, I think the Eastern Conference stacks up much better against the Western Conference. I think your ace in the hole, so to speak, is the Golden State Warriors, which is by far the best team, not only in the Western Conference, but in the National Basketball Association. Could very well end up being one of the greatest teams in NBA history, period. I'm your host, Nina. This is the Patrick Ewing Ruin My Life podcast show. Check us out on SoundCloud. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, iTunes podcasting. I thank you all so, so, so very much. Again, thanks for tuning in. Check us out on all these social media platforms. I appreciate your support. And uh, I look forward to lining up some guests and all your comments, suggestions, criticisms, whether it be constructive or not, are very much welcome. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Peace and love, everyone. Peace and love.